Don't you just love the Easter energy? You know what I'm talking about? It just creates a different kind of energy. And I think that's partly because, and I don't think most people know this, but Easter is like the Christian Christmas. And here's what I mean. (laughs) Stay with me. Christmas is sort of culturally like the day, right? I mean, the day after Thanksgiving, we're punching people in parking lots. We're like, it's Christmas, right? Christmas, Christmas, Christmas. For Christians, though, Easter is, is like the day. It's the day our faith, our tradition, our experience, it's the day everything sort of begins from. Without the Easter moment, without the Easter experience, there really isn't a Christian movement at all. And I love these words from Karl Barth as he talks about resurrection. He says, the goal of human life is not death, but resurrection. The goal of human life is not death, but resurrection. I think I should begin today with a little bit of a confession, and that is that I have pretty much my entire life been a germaphobe, like super, super afraid of germs. Um, I've been told that I use hand sanitizer so much that I'm killing the good bacteria, and I don't think that's actually a real thing. I think people are trying to trick me into being sick. Uh, I, I'm a total germaphobe. Now, one of the things that has helped that, um, I, I, love, I love hand sanitizer so much that when we gather with our family at Thanksgiving and they're like, go around and tell everybody what you're thankful for, I just say hand sanitizer. Like, that's my grateful uh, moment. Um, but one of the things that has helped me be less afraid of germs and less weirded out by gross germy things is having kids. <laughs> right? And, and once you have so many kids, you're not afraid of anything anymore because you've seen everything. Um, and, and particularly this is because our kids, if, if you come to our house at any given moment, it is a breeding ground of disease. It's just true. Somebody at my house is always sick. And recently we had this moment where we were actually looking at a house um, and we got a phone call from daycare that said, you've got to get over here right away. Um, there was a virus going around in the daycare and somehow one of our kiddos had gotten it. And we went to pick him up and sure enough, you could tell he had he, he had the thing, right? And so we decided we're going to take him home. We're going to try to keep him sequestered from all the other kids because we want to stop this before it gets out of hand. Three days later, it looked like we were auditioning people for The Walking Dead in our house. It was that quick, and eventually we just realized everybody's going to get it. And sure enough, everybody but me and Carla uh, got it, and it was terrible. But I remember being in that panicked moment and just realizing it's inevitable. They're all going to fall. They're all going to get it. And sure enough, they did. Last Sunday, we went out, uh, it was my last Sunday in Morgantown, we went out with some friends for lunch, and one of our kids decided it was a great time to just lose his mind. And so we were in this restaurant, loved the restaurant, I I just wouldn't hang out on the floor. Fair. Uh, He decided to spend his entire meal rolling around in the floor, and at one point I just looked at Carla and said, we got to leave this one behind, like he can't come home (laughs) in this condition. Um, so I've always been a bit of a germaphobe. What's interesting is our ancient ancestors didn't know anything about germs, right? If somebody got sick or if somebody ended up having some sort of serious medical condition, they, they actually would just typically chalk it up to, well, the gods must be angry with you, right? That's why that happened is because you've done something wrong. You've sinned, you've, you've crossed a boundary, and now the gods are punishing you for what you've done. And the other thought was maybe you've been possessed, And I've been around kids at times when I've wondered. (laughs) But our ancestors, that was their answer to everything, right? They didn't know about germs. They didn't know about microbes. They didn't know about viruses. um, They didn't know about hygiene, right? 
so their, their frame of reference for that sort of thing didn't exist. And yet they had very clear boundaries of things that they thought should be kept at a distance because they thought they were contagious. And those boundaries weren't um, issues of hygiene. They were issues of purity. And so in the ancient world, they would talk a lot about purity and impurity. You're either pure or you're impure. They would talk about being clean or unclean. How many of you heard this language before, if you've been around? Yeah, clean or unclean. And they would take these categories of pure and impure, clean and unclean, and they would apply them sometimes to individuals, right? So this individual is impure or this individual is unclean, but often they would apply them to entire groups of people. These entire groups of people are unclean. They're, they must be separated from. We must not touch. We must not encounter. We must not interact with because what they have may then spread to us. And it was all based on externals, right? It was never based on internal. And this is not just a Christian thing, Jewish. This is a human issue. Are you with me? A human issue. We, we believe that some people were contagious because of things that happened to them externally. They, they came in contact with something that has rendered them impure. They can't afford the ritual to be clean, and so now they're impure. And it sounds kind of crazy to us, but if you think about it like this, how many of you grew up in a youth group, going to church in a youth group? You know exactly what I'm talking about. When I was in youth group, this is when the whole CD things, I don't even know what you call them, but it's like where they would give you 10 CDs for a penny each and then charge you $400 for the rest of them. So I did that twice because I'm a sucker. Uh, twice I did that, and I had an amazing collection of CDs. I mean, uh, I, I love 90s music. I always wonder why my dad listened, like, like, listens to the Eagles and stuff all the time, and now I'm listening to, I mean, Matchbox 20. Love it. Had all these great CDs, and our youth group together were together one night, and they're like, we have to purge the sin from among us. I'm like, that's really dramatic. I, I don't know. But then they were like, you should get rid of all of your secular stuff and replace it all with Christian stuff, right? So if you have a secular bracelet, get a WWJD bracelet, right? Or, or they actually would put us in the church basement and we'd be making those little beaded bracelets, you know? So much fun. Um, crafts, I love crafts. Um, and and uh, it, it was based on externals though, right? It was never based on what's going on in your heart, what's going on in your life, what kind of person are you becoming? It was don't touch, don't handle, stay away. It's bad. It will do something. And we even applied that to groups of people, like our unsaved friends. Like we, weren't, we were only allowed to be friends with them for the purposes of uh, indoctrination and conversion, right? The minute you realize they're not going to convert, you're on to another friend because you can't be too close. You might catch it, right? This is, this is how the ancient world thought. My gosh, it's how we think today, or, or a lot of us have thought. But what happened in the Jesus experience was these first Christians, these first people who wouldn't even, they wouldn't have been called Christians. They were just people who were um, Jewish and attracted to the message of Jesus. They began to see in Jesus something else. A different principle was at work. Jesus would go into all these settings and contexts where impurity was everywhere, right? And somehow he would enter into it. And when he left, he wasn't impure, but his health was passed on to them. The first Christians realized Jesus has a health and wholeness that's actually contagious to everyone he came in contact with. That's why I think one of the most amazing things about Jesus, the, the miracles in the Bible, 
I mean, we can, we can spend all day debating on what's literal, what's not literal, and that may be fun at times. But the reality, I think the real miracle is that Jesus lived in a worldview. That's definitely one of my kids. Jesus lived <laughs> in, a, um, in a world of impurity and clean, uncleanness, and, and those were the, the big things to be afraid of. And Jesus continually went into places and interacted with people. The miracle is that Jesus was willing to touch and be touched by unclean people. That's the miracle. The miracle is that Jesus restores those same people back to the life of the community. Right, think about the, let's think about the leper, right? There, Jesus encounters a leper and he heals the leper. And what does he say to the leper? Which sounds weird to us. He says, the leper like, wants to go with him. And he's like, no, 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 go show yourself to the priest. Doesn't that seem like a weird move if you're trying to build a fan base? Like, no, don't go on the road, go show yourself. Why? because the priest is the one who decides whether or not this person can be restored to community. And Jesus' desire is to take people who've been alienated and who, people who were viewed to be contagious and actually to say they're not contagious. You can embrace them. You can welcome them back. There's the woman who had the issue of bleeding and she crawls through the crowd. She's unclean. Imagine her crawling through the crowd, touching everybody. The contagion is spreading. And she reaches out and grabs Jesus. And what happens to her? She's healed. And what does Jesus say to her? Who did it? Who touched me? And the disciples think he's crazy. There are lots of people. Nobody can know. And then the woman comes forward. Why does he call her out? It seems a little insensitive. Why does he call her out? Because he wants to show the entire community she's okay. She's clean. You don't have to be afraid of her. Jesus had a transformative welcome that embraced people, and through that welcome, he imparted this wholeness to them, and not even physically, but internally, right? That's what Jesus is up to. He restores people to community and reveals that they actually never were separated from God to begin with. That whole clean, unclean thing is our deal, not God's deal. That's what Jesus is trying to show. Jesus had a health and a wholeness that was contagious and transcended boundaries, even the boundary of death. Now, I think you would agree with me. Death is the ultimate unhealth. <laughs> Anybody want to argue that? I mean, I don't think if you're dead, you're not going, you know, I think he's okay. I think he's going to be okay. Death is sort of the ultimate unhealth. And we come to days like Easter, and i got to be honest, as a pastor, I've been preaching for 20 years, 21 years. I've done a lot of Easter sermons. And it, there comes a point when you're sort of at this place where you're like, I don't know what to do with this anymore. Because the way we've been taught to see the story is, Easter means something really, really interesting happened to Jesus, and maybe someday it'll have something to say to us. Right? Something really neat happened to Jesus, and maybe when we die, we get something really cool too, but it really doesn't speak to anything that's happening in the concrete existence of life. It has no practical value. I don't think that's true. I think Easter, I think resurrection has a lot of practical value for the way you and I live our lives, not on just on Easter Sunday, but like on a random Tuesday in October. I think that this Easter story matters. And I love this Easter story in John where Mary comes to the tomb, Mary Magdalene, she's one of Jesus' devoted followers, grieving the loss of her teacher, grieving the loss of her friend. And she comes to the tomb and finds it empty. And you can imagine in her brain, she's thinking, so they degrade him and execute him, and then they heap indignity upon indignity and they steal his body? 
And so Mary's weeping. And I love the question she gets asked. Why are you crying? Doesn't that sound a little insensitive? Why are you crying? Well, I'm, I'm at a tomb, so why, why are you asking why I'm crying? And yet, in that moment, he speaks her name, Mary. There, there's something about that, something about hearing a familiar voice in a time of chaos, just say your name, and, and the sense of peace that that can bring over you. Right? Why is it when people are going through traumatic events, sometimes we'll just say their name over and over again? to try to calm them down so that they know that they're seen and known and they're they're not alone. Jesus says, Mary, and Mary thinks he's the gardener. Before he says her name, she thinks he's the gardener. It's the Mary that opens her eyes. She thinks he's the gardener, which is a really interesting detail for the writer of John to add. Where did creation begin in the scriptures? In a garden. Where does new creation begin in the scriptures? In a garden. And Mary thinks he's the gardener, and she wasn't wrong. Right? Jesus is the gardener launching a project of new creation. He transcends all the boundaries, clean, unclean, pure, impure, the ultimate impurity and uncleanness of death. Jesus transcends them. And this encounter with Mary in the garden of new creation opens her eyes, and she becomes a transformed human being. And notice what she says. She runs away from that encounter with Jesus, and she says to the disciples who were too afraid to show up, right? The macho dude disciples back in the locked room, scared to death. Mary runs to them, and what does she say? I have seen the Lord. I, Mary, says, I, I've had an experience I've had an experience of this Jesus, this Jesus we loved and followed, this Jesus we trusted. I've had an experience of him. He is not dead, but he has been raised, and he's doing stuff in the world, and we get to be a part of it. I have seen the Lord. Very quickly, though, still in that locked upper room, that same evening, the disciples have an encounter, all except Thomas. And they meet the risen Christ, and he breathes the Spirit. Pentecost happens on Easter in the Gospel of John. He breathes the Spirit into them. And Thomas isn't there. And what do those first disciples say to Thomas? We have seen the Lord. We go from I to we. There's this movement of resurrection from the individual to the communal. And the secret gets out pretty quick. And suddenly you have a global movement of people who are saying, I, we have had an experience that leads us to trust that the one who was crucified has been raised, that something brand new is happening in the world, that death doesn't have the final word, that creation isn't spiraling out of control, that all hope is not in fact lost, that there's something new bursting forth in the middle of the old, right? That's the Easter announcement. And it begins here in Mary and it spreads to these other disciples, and it becomes a contagion of hope and newness everywhere. One of my favorite writers, uh, John Dominic Crossan, came out with a book last year called, um, I think it's called Resurrecting Easter. Anybody read that? Uh, He and his wife did the book together. She's a photographer, he's a theologian. They went around taking pictures of resurrection images because they noticed something, that all the images, images for resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus in the Western world uh, were Jesus triumphing, triumphantly coming out of the tomb alone, right? Sometimes he's stepping on Hades, but generally he's coming out of the tomb alone. What they noticed in the Eastern world, and I think we're going to show you a picture, what they noticed in the Eastern world, and I don't know if you can see this, but this is Jesus in the middle, and there are a man and a woman uh, 
next to him on the left. Who, who, will those, who are those people? They begin to see this everywhere. Sometimes other biblical figures pop up, but it's always these two people. It's Adam and Eve. In the Eastern tradition, Jesus never rises alone. He always brings everybody else with him. Isn't that a different story? This is not a story that says something really amazing happened to Jesus, and maybe someday if you check off all the right boxes, it'll happen for you too. It's a story that says right now, whether you know it or not, right now, whether you're aware of it, whether you can sense it, whether you can feel it, whether you trust it. Right now, in this world, the seeds of new creation have been sown, the tomb has been found empty, and Jesus is bringing all of his brothers and sisters with him. I mean, that is an Easter announcement. It's an Easter announcement for the entire cosmos. That how things are ain't how it's going to be. Which led me to think that, I don't know if you pay attention to the world, but it seems like it's really easy to, to build a contagious movement of hate. It's really easy to build a contagious movement of uh, violence, to build a contagious movement of deciding who's loved and who's not loved. Those, you know, have you ever been in a crowd where it seems like it's just going that way? You get, you get a, one hateful person together with another, and it just spreads like wildfire. What if the Easter story is about building a different kind of contagious movement? What if it's about building a contagious movement of love and compassion and goodness and hope and joy and kindness, and you can fill in the rest of the blanks, right? You know where that's headed. What if it's about building that kind of movement? What if the resurrection isn't a doctrine to be debated, right? Mary doesn't go to the disciples and say, I've seen the Lord, and here are eight points about resurrection. (laughs) If you don't believe them all the way I believe them, you are not a Christian. Not Mary's move. I've seen, I've had an experience. I've found that people are really interested in hearing about experience. Because what good is it if you know all eight, not really eight points, but what if you know all the points about resurrection, you've got historic Christian orthodoxy as if that were a real thing, and you've got it on your side, uh, and yet you haven't had an experience. You can say, I know things about the Lord that other people have said. There's a difference in saying, I've seen the Lord. We've seen the Lord. We've been transformed by this. We've realized that the resurrection is not just about Jesus. It's also about us. It's not just about us someday. It's about us right here and right now. And what if our calling is not to convince people to believe in doctrine or dogma? What if our calling is to simply announce to people, there's a new world coming. You should get in on it. And you may not call it the same label I do, but you should get in on it. Because the world, the old world, the world of pain and brokenness and suffering, the world of injustice and the world of hate, the world of misogyny and all the isms and phobias we carry around, that world is on the way out. It's got its walking papers and it's done. And we are building a movement of something new. But it's really not new. It's been the intention all along. Uh, I mentioned Karl Barth when I came up. I don't, uh, it's going to seem like I'm a huge Karl Barth fan. I mean, hit or miss miss more than hit sometimes. I'm going to show you a picture. This is from Time Magazine on April 20th, 1962. 57 years ago yesterday, Karl Barth, and when you read things about him, he was, a rock, he was the rock star theologian of the 20th century. Does that look like a rock star? <laughs> He's wearing skinny leather jeans, though. You may need to know that. Um, trendsetter. So this is Karl Barth. 
Um, there's a story that I have no idea if it's true, but it's a great story about Karl Barth. He was from Switzerland. And one day he was on pub public transportation and a tourist from uh, America got on the public transportation. And he was riding, he sat next to Karl Barth, was riding around and Karl, Mr. Barth, says to him, uh, are, you, are you new in town? And he's like, yeah, I'm here. I'm, I'm just a visitor. I'm, tour I'm doing the tourist thing. He says, oh, what do you hope to see while you're here? And the man responds, I'd really love to meet Karl Barth. <laughs> do you know him? Because you, you love, like, you live in Nashville and somebody's friend, you're like, like, hey, I know somebody in Nashville. Do you know them? Probably not, right? Big country, big, this is Switzerland, bigger place. Um, do you know him? And Karl Barth looks at him and says, know him? I shave his face every morning. <laughs> the next stop comes up, the tourist says, ple makes pleasantries and gets off and goes away, and he's telling all the people he meets, I just met Karl Barth's barber. Now, there's something to be said for awareness, right? There's something to be said for being aware. Because something can be true of you, and if you're, if you're not, like, if you won the lottery, but nobody told you, right? And so this idea of resurrection, it's true of us. But unlocking the potential is when we become aware that it's true of us. That you're not this dirty, rotten, depraved, good-for-nothing. You are a beloved child of God. You have been raised in this resurrected Christ to new places. New creation is waiting for you. Easter is not just the day when Jesus comes out of the tomb. Easter is the day when we all come out of the tomb to take our rightful place as gardeners of a new creation. And when that becomes the Easter story the Christian church is known for, whew, watch out. The world can't help but get better. Are you with me? Yeah. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for this Easter morning. This morning where we celebrate that death and hopelessness, pain and suffering, exclusion, violence, all the phobias and isms that have plagued our world, they do not have the last say. There is a new creation being born right in the middle of the old one. Open our hearts and open our eyes. Give us the courage to step into our calling and our role as fellow gardeners, cultivating a new world. Give us the courage to spread the contagion of love and life and wholeness everywhere we go. May it begin in us, but may it not stay in us. May it spread to each and every human life we encounter. So today with Christians all around the world and throughout history, we celebrate that the Christ who was crucified by the empire has been raised by God and the possibilities are endless. And we walk into those as we leave a dark, empty tomb behind, knowing there's much work to do. We offer this in the name of Jesus, the risen one, and everybody said, amen. amen.